<laughs> I, was waiting, I was waiting for her to do the intro. Yeah, she she's a, she's awake. She's ready for thinking religion today. Might be uh, might be the youngest podcast. Oh, she doesn't like it. There we go. The joys of podcasting with a newborn. Yeah, I think that this is a good example of what our life is like right now, right? Yeah, you could say that. We try to have a conversation about religion. <laughs> Some baby cries or a dog barks. Or a three-year-old throws a temper tantrum because you're not paying attention to this bubble <laughs> at the time. Yeah, that's what I said. Some baby <laughs> cries. Yeah, I think the other night I was... I was trying to talk to you or something and I like snapped my fingers because you were, you kept like looking over to the kid and I was like, between the two kids. Yeah. Back and forth and back and forth. And, and you're like, don't snap your fingers at me. I was like, I can't right now. There's too, there's had, too much. I had a really good point about the desert mothers, you know, I was trying to, trying to get that out of my head. Were the desert mothers actual mothers though? I thought there no, was no, celibacy in the <laughs> desert. And the desert fathers weren't actual, well, I mean, some might have been, but uh, yes, I mean, celibacy was a big part of that. But also, um, you know, St. Anthony, the, those folks who went out to the desert, they, uh, they they were called the fathers and the mothers because they, they sort of kick-started started something, yeah. the, the monastic movement, if you will. And not that, because they had actual kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. We say church fathers, not because, or church mothers, not because they uh, gave birth to people in the church, but because, or or procreated to give birth, but they, uh, they were seen as, you know, ushering in the, the next group of people, I guess, or yeah. the next evolution of, of that institution. I still use that language today. You know, the father of the country is George Washington and, you know, the, the father of the constitution. Yeah, the founding fathers, right? Yeah. Founding fathers, right. Um, and in a lot of tradition, the, um, you refer to the leader as father. Well, that, I mean, I call Trump daddy all the time. Oh, God. No, no. Religious you know. traditions. <laughs> oh, God. Speaking of, I, I learned what drip meant. I didn't know that this was a term. Do you, do you, want, do you know what it means to drip? I'm totally being a 40-year-old white guy with, with four kids, but... No. All right. So, this is for Thomas. Um, there is uh, a term that I learned last night on Twitter because President Obama who I celebrated on President's Day, um, was at the UNC Duke basketball game last night. And oh, was there a game last night? <laughs> <laughs> the, the five minutes you allowed me to be in the in the room last night, um, I, I saw President Obama, and I was like, oh, Obama's there. You started telling me stories like this, and I was like, no. I mean, wait for halftime. <laughs> so he, he had on what people are calling the Obama, because it was like a... Yeah, a bomber leather jacket, yeah. But it had 44 on the, uh, on the sleeve, evidently. Did it? Yeah, and it was like all stylish, and people are like, "Where's that merch link, yo? <laughs> like, where's your IG?" Anyway, it, it caught on on social media, and uh, people were coming up with all these funny things. But I, I kept seeing people because I'm, I'm watching the Twitter feed about Obama while you're upstairs watching the game, and uh, I kept seeing people, young people, refer to uh, him as having so much drip, and oh man, look at all this drip, you know, and like the little drip, like water droplet emoji. And I was like, "What, what does that mean?" So <laughs> your constant quest to understand emojis <laughs> just to understand culture now. Cause I'm so far out. I'm, I'm like a desert father, you know, I'm, I'm way out in Libya, <laughs> but in a, in a hole in the ground. You always did want to be a monk. I did. I did. I have a St. Benedictine uh, cross around my neck right now. So, um, 
looked it up and, and found Urban Dictionary. And I'm, I'm going to read this in, in white guy format. Let me, let me bring this up again. Drip Urban Dictionary. Sorry for typing on the show. Uh, and you don't know what this means, right? And you're a millennial. I mean, I can ascertain that the from the context you just used, but no. Okay, so, so evidently this this really caught on around, uh, let's see, October of 2018 is when it really exploded. And it, it also surged last night, I think, because so many people like me were like, drip, what does this mean? Uh, according to Urban Dictionary, when your bling is iced out, but that S word melting from all your hot bars, you got the drip. It's another word for immense swag. Yeah. I know what swag means. So, yo, that new rapper got the drip. And then the guy too responds, for real, yo, he dripping. Yeah, I'm so kind it's of kind of, but it's kind of ironic using it for Obama because he's not blinged out. He's just stylish. And he's still, and he's still got that Obama swagger. Well, that's drip, right? Because he, he's got his hot bar from all of his hot, what was a hot bar? Term music, particularly hip hop, it is a witty line or slick rhyme. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's it's metaphorical. So we're just, we're just appropriating all kind of cultures here in the first few minutes of the show. But that's good. That's how we get people to listen <laughs> and to make yeah. people angry, which is our our whole goal in life: make our kids angry, make people angry. <laughs> so let's talk about the uh, the gay people in the Methodist now. Uh, so yeah, I want to I want to. Just, just uh, tell you if you, if you have feedback, just write Mariana or at Mariana <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> at Thomas Whitley. Yeah, yeah. I, I've deleted all of my social media, so don't don't try to at me. Um, yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting, and it's it's another way that I think culture and religion kind of go hand in hand because, like you were talking about, desert fathers, desert mothers. You know, there are these terms that insiders use in religious world. Like there there, there are CBF terms like cooperative Baptist terms that we have about oh, yeah. that don't really apply to the ECC world or, or the United Methodist world or the Presbyterian world. And they have insider, insider language, you know, and we kind of each appropriate this stuff. Um, yeah. So outsiders are always like, wait, what, what do you mean general assembly? And I'm like, yo, GA, I mean, come on. How do you not know what GA is? <laughs> That's funny. GA is like girls in action. <laughs> no. Royal ambassadors. I pledge allegiance to the Bible. Make it a lamp into my feet, light into my path. Sunbeams. That's the other one I've heard referenced recently where somebody was like, wait, what are you talking about? Jesus you know, wants me for a sunbeam. I, I didn't know about that saying. It, does that come out of GAs? Or no, sunbeams? it's an actual okay. program. For younger kids than GAs? For, yeah, preschool. Yeah. Okay. So the I, again, I, I didn't go to church until later in life. I was like 13 or 14, but I was also heavily into Nirvana at the same time. Um. And Which would not have been possible in my church context. <laughs> it you was, couldn't be both. It was odd for rural South Carolina. But uh, they had a song in their Unplugged album called Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam. And you great. had no idea what the reference was? I had no idea what a, what a sunbeam was, but I, I was listening <laughs> to the song, and I did the same thing I just did last night with Drippin'. So I, I tried to figure out what sunbeam meant. And I think, actually, one day at the school library, like, was looking around because we didn't have Google. Right. This was, you know, Stone Age. Because you're old. Because yeah. I'm old. But I actually f- used these things called books and uh, codexes, and I figured out what sunbeam, sunbeam meant. And I was like, oh, well, I'm Southern Baptist. I should know that. But we didn't have a Sunbeam program at our church. But then that made that Nirvana song even more, uh, like, relevant to me. And I, I still love it today. 
Yeah. So you can get the, it's amazing when you start to kind of chase this rabbit down the rabbit hole, how many writers, especially Southern writers and artists make religious reference that are really insider language that you wouldn't get. Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite. I mean, my, my master's degree is in religion and literature. So I I did a lot of Flannery O'Connor and and Southern Gothic uh, stuff. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, part of it and you know part of the and she was catholic as well growing up in georgia and living in georgia um so it's really interesting to see how she did that but even like georgia o'keefe you know with, with some yep. of her paintings um you know people are like oh it's a vagina and it's like no no there's there's all sorts of religious imagery in there as well in there as well concept. yeah or sue monk kid if you haven't ever if you have only read her mainstream novels then you wouldn't know the spiritual journey she went to went through or any of her theological writing uh, Madeline Lingle's another one. If you just know her children's books, is I mean, from, yeah. But she's from France, right? Well, yeah. Well, no, I don't think she's from France, but her. France. Uh, <laughs> I sneeze at that. <laughs> no, but I'm saying some of these. Tony Morrison. The, yeah. Right. One of these. Um, one of the realizations and revelations I had is that so many of these authors that I had read in my literacy program had actual theological writing too that just isn't as popular. They weren't New York Times bestsellers like the mermaid chair. And so you wouldn't know. Yeah. And I think that's interesting, but do you think that's a reflection of people not wanting, I mean, cause they're playing off of themes that, that every, you know, artist kind of explores in somewhere or, or another. I mean, you can't listen to a Tom Petty album even, you know, without getting a little bit of some religious, you know, uh, mention or, or kind of religion adjacent language. Right. So I, I think, you know, even in mainstream, mainstream culture, you know, Britney Spears type stuff, there's still kind of this um, veneer of, of playing with religious symbolism in some way. Oh, I think so. But yeah. I think that's, that's a, I mean, that's, that was, you know, part of one of my classes was to take mainstream or cultural context and turn it into a sermon illustration. So, you know, this is kind of how I was taught to see the world. Yeah, <laughs> so see, it's I, hard for me to be like, no, that's not possible. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And see, I hate that. I hate that style of sermon editing, you know, but we always, for, for folks who, who aren't in our home, you know, on Sunday afternoons when we're digesting the sermon, that Mariana just gave. Um, a lot of times it's, it's me kind of grousing and saying like, Oh, why bring <laughs> a in lot of times. <laughs> do you mean a hundred percent of the time? You should be preaching about the Bible, not about, you know, days of our lives or whatever. And uh, Gilmore girls, Gilmore girls. There we go. UNC basketball. Come on. I mean, I have readily available sermon illustrations, but the good news is that this week I get to do that to you on Sunday afternoon because you're preaching this week. Not me. I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm trepidated. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's been like a year, hasn't it? Maybe I think so. Been. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So but, I get to come to you every day, every night and be like, you have your sermon written yet? You have your sermon written yet? I'll just ask you that on, on Friday afternoon or Saturday night, you know, just to make sure. What I, are you I, preaching on? What are you preaching on? <laughs> and half the time you're like, yeah, you know, I was going to do this, but I'm thinking I'm going to change it up. And then Sunday morning, you know, I see you working on your sermon. I'm like, aha. Cause you, cause you went to Furman and I'll always do everything last minute. 
Uh huh. Yeah. That's how my sermon writing process works. You've discovered the key. Yeah. It's, it's hard writing a sermon in 2019 though, because so much of, of giving a sermon or, or presenting a sermon or preaching a sermon has to do with performance now in a way that even when I was, you know, going through seminary, it, it, it was, I don't know, it felt different. Make America great again. You know, but it felt like, or it feels like we're, we're moving kind of towards this period in, in mainstream churches. And even in some of the more liturgical churches I've been to recently, you know, Episcopalian and Lutheran churches, there's this notion that people have to be not entertained. I mean, that's, that's kind of a trope, but people have to be engaged and, and, you know, that the, the, there's got to be some Instagram takeaways and some hashtags thrown in there that, that people can really digest. Right. I mean, we, we have access to so much more quality uh, entertainment now with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon prime and this and that. And we're all exposed to incredible TV shows and incredible music with Spotify and Apple music or whatever. And, and we have, exposure to so many incredible visual images from our friends or people we follow on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So a pastor has a really difficult job in 2019 and beyond. Can I, can I record that? Oh, we are recording that. This is on record now. No, no, but I'm I'm not saying, so this is something I keep going back to on this show, going back to the beginning of the show. Like a pastor has to have the, the bravery to say, I'm not going to try to compete with Ozark or I'm not going to try to compete with, you know, the stand-up comedians on, on Netflix, but we're able to, to have access to such high quality stuff now that, you know, I think the person in the pews, if you go on for 20 minutes and you don't have an interesting opening act, second act, and then the third act with a twist, uh, people are going to say, well, that was, that was okay. But, you know, I, I wish the, the reveal had been a little more uh, surprising, you know, or something like that. And, and I see pastors trying to compete with Netflix or, or compete with that, that draw of attention. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting time. Yeah. And I do think that there's a high emphasis on churches that are considered that considers themselves to be high church or liturgical churches to have a very polished sermon wherein you bring in your manuscript and you preach word from word because you have taken so much time to make sure those words are correct. See, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Which it, that really holds up well in a Baptist church in 2019, let me tell you. <laughs> well, and but you miss some of the personal, in my opinion, and and in my preaching philosophy, you miss some of the opportunities to connect personally and individually with the congregation when you cling so strongly to the words that were written in solitude and in silence and in reflection. I mean, those are certainly important. And I get the, you know, I get the criticism all the time. Oh, I just like how you just like off the cuff it. And I'm like, uh, I, I've been working on this sermon all week and I've carefully crafted my words, but then I let go of the manuscript in order to be present in the moment and in the stories that I hear as I'm walking in and in the fears that I hear and in the prayer requests I hear and it changes once you enter into that holy space together. And I allow for that in my sermon preaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there's something to be said for that. I'm, you know, I definitely admire the Fred Craddock, you know, kind of speechy, uh, you know, kind of, kind of um, non-polished feel. Not, not that Fred Craddock wasn't polished, of course, you know, but that, that more conversational feel to there, it. 
narrative, if you will. Narrative, if you will. That's that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> you know, but but the the old model, not old. I guess the new model of, you know, here's a funny story. Here's kind of the meat of the passage. I'm going to wrap it up again and tie it back to that funny story I started with, and go and do likewise. You know, like that. That just it feels like verse, course, verse to me. You know, it's, it's like something Nirvana was trying to push against with with song structures and you know syncopatic beats and you know playing around what it meant to have a song. And, and in the same way, I think preachers get too comfortable in that notion of all right, you know, get get them interested with the hook and then you know, do a couple of verses and talk about God as, as monarch or whatever, then, you know, come back to the funny stuff. That's also a little bittersweet, pull in some emotions and, uh, you know, get them, get them to pass the plate, you know? Oh, I know this because we have this debate back and forth all the time. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. But so it's I mean, good to air it out in front of a, a larger um, audience though. It is. I mean, and the reason I, I, I don't always, I mean, especially when I have a manuscript, I don't always, you know, read verbatim from the manuscript, but I like having a text that I've poured over and I've thought about the whole week and I've like, like you said, you know, carefully crafted thinking about the congregation, thinking about that group of people, but also thinking about the content, (laughs) thinking about the context of, uh, you know, the the passage or the passages or, you know, whatever the, the sermon is about because to me the sermon is a part of worship just as much as you know the table or um you know the the, the hymns or whatever and it, it 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 in this cultural context i think we we've made it into the i don't know i guess the not the main part of the show but even in episcopalian churches where i go now you know, the, the sermon needs to just be a leading, part of it. Yeah, it's all leading up to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, no, this is just another part of the worship service meant to expound on a certain thing. You know, like, this is not the, you know, the, the, the sort of apex of, of the worship service. Uh, but especially in our Baptist context or your UCC context, I mean, I think we've, we've put that on such a pedestal now that we're in a, we're in a tricky spot for, for a lot of pastors. Well, especially in Baptist traditions where, Sermons are 45 minutes long. And you know, there's not much else to the service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, you kind of speed through all the songs and, you know, you might cut a couple of verses out of, of just as I am or whatever, so that you can get to that sermon and give that preacher 30 minutes to, to go off. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, that's always been an element of, of, you know, low polity, you know, Baptist type churches, um, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's a interesting time given all the other cultural situations we have going on around us. Well, and then you get to like a Methodist tradition. And I just wonder if any of the Methodist ministers have crafted their sermon because general conferences now, and yeah. so it's, do you, do you, do you write two sermons? One if the decision goes this way, and one if the decision goes that way. Or they're Methodists. They're not, they're not going to talk about politics in the pulpit. They're just going <laughs> to going to have their their sermon on John, and they're going to get up there and, and dryly deliver it, and they're going to be very methodical about it because that's what we're taught to do at Emory and Duke and and Yale. You know, and you're not you're, you're taught to kind of see past. You you, you want to skate to where the puck is heading. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's how you get around all these uh, cultural. Uh, conflicts. You you just don't really address them from the pulpit. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, you just, you just skate over the ice. That's certainly one way to handle it. Yeah, I know. I've got a lot of Southern Baptist pastor friends who are going through the same thing right now with the crisis. Oh, yeah, with the crisis in the Southern Baptist Convention over the Houston Chronicle report. And then the executive committee, whatever their governing body is called, met this week, too. And so they had some pretty strong statements about, I would call it reform, systematic reform to try to protect against abuse. I wouldn't say it's reform. I would say it's more uh, uh, post-event accountability or, or trying to look back and, and not put a Band-Aid on it, but, but you know, come up with some solutions to the immediate problem and come back together to think about what to do about the problems on the road. Because the, the problem with Baptist life is that, and this is a, a surprise to a lot of my friends, even you know, my Methodist and Presbyterian friends, you're not ordained by the Southern Baptist Convention or right. the Barbara right, Baptist right, Fellowship, right. right? So my ordination applies or is my ordination derives, I guess, from Emmanuel Baptist Fellowship. And say I go out and do something terrible, it's not up to the CBF, it's not up to CBF South Carolina, it's not up to the coordinator, we don't have bishops, it's not up to, you know, Southern Baptist Convention, whatever. It's up to that church uh, to revoke my ordination. So what J.D. Greer, who's now the um, the, uh, is it president? Call, yeah. President of, of the Southern Baptist convention. Um, young guy, he's only like what, 44. I this, think he's yeah. even younger than that. Squad goals. I, I can, I can get there in a few years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, uh, put out a, a pretty blistering statement during that executive committee meeting saying, you know, here are, I think he said, he called out 10 churches, 10 large major churches like second Baptist in Houston, which is a huge church. Uh, because of their history of cover-ups and, and hiring people and uh, not holding male ministers accountable uh, and said, look, you know, we, we'll even think about disassociation. So what the convention can do to step in or what the CBF can do and has done and what the Southern Baptist Convention, as you know, has, has done even here in South Carolina, uh, if a church does something that they see as outside of biblical norms or whatever the establishment is that covenant between the convention and, and a church, um, they will disassociate with you. So basically you lose your standing in the, in the local association, which can impact everything from, from finances to a preacher's insurance to, you know, all sorts yeah, of things. Insurance, retirement. Yeah. All kinds you of, you don't want to lose that Guidestone <laughs> insurance. Oh, so, I lost it. It, it hurt oh, a lot. No. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are some things that, that they're looking at doing, which I think is really interesting, but you know, I, I just wonder how long it's going to stick around in the, uh, oh, oh. oh, hush. It wouldn't be a thinking religion without dogs. Yeah. It seems to be ours though, except that they didn't do it. while you Willie. <laughs> he it's, it's his, uh, big, big dog bark. That is his big dog bark. Snap, snap your fingers and say, stop. Willie. Stop. There you go. See? Oh, ah. He's sort of <laughs> he well trained. Yeah, he can't hear you, though. You got, you got to snap your fingers, and, and he'll, he gets it. That's his trigger. Or just mute. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I think um, the Southern Baptist um, conundrum there is based on a decentralization of the ordination model, but also a decentralization of just how they do um, 
you know, organization because the local church is the primary unit and things like associations and, and the convention around that are su- support and supply chains. But it's supposed to be the local church that is the, the prime part of Southern Baptist life. And the and same with the CBF as well. And that's, yeah. that's the Baptist world. And it's never, that's not going to change. No, that's not going to change. But I do think you see some shifting in the Southern Baptist world to support and to encourage victims who are both male and female, if you see the report, um, but to honor the voices of some of these victims and to hear their stories. I mean, if you followed kind of Beth Moore coming out about her experience with sexual abuse and the controversy that arose after that, there were a lot of Southern Baptists who supported her because they respected her and they respected um, the work that she's done in Southern Baptist kind of world. And the ones that didn't support her, you know, they kind of got ganged up on. So there's some shifting going on in the Southern Baptist world right now in regards in particular to women in ministry, which is fascinating. You know, what I heard growing up, and I don't talk much about this is, you know, when I would bring up something that seemed to me to be a discrepancy, not that I understood the theological interpretation or the dogmatic acceptance of not having women in ministry and in leadership positions, the response that I often got was, oh, it'll swing back. Well, they used to be more involved and it'll swing back. The pendulum will swing back to include them more fully and without as many restrictions. And I always thought, well, what about now though, as a woman, you know, as a girl growing up, like, uh, so I just have to wait until the pendulum swings back. And then here I am and I'm like, oh, I wonder if, if people were right. Because you grew up with women deacons, right? Yeah, I went to a, a small 100-member Southern Baptist church in you know Little Mullen, South Carolina, and we had we had a woman deacon, and we had a couple of other females in leadership. We might have more. I, I just remember one, and it wasn't a big deal, or at least it didn't oh, yeah. seem like it to me. And nobody, you know? yeah, nobody, you know, disassociated a church for having a woman offer a prayer or having a woman who even held the title of minister. Um, and then I don't, I mean, when I was growing up, it was very strict gender norms as well as gender roles were very highly emphasized, especially when I got into youth group, there was all sorts of curriculum about how to be a godly woman and to become a godly woman. And yeah. so there's just this overemphasis and if you look at Southern Baptist history, it aligns exactly with the faith and Baptist message and the way that changed. I was going to say, I mean, 1996 with the, yeah. the new faith and Baptist message, which people outside of, again, insider language, people outside of Baptist life don't understand. Like when, when I've applied to churches in the past, or when I've studied churches in the past, when I work with churches now, um, one of the things that especially Southern Baptist churches, but even CBF churches will do is say, we align with the 2000 Baptist faith, the message, right, right, we align right. with the 96 <laughs> message, we align with the 72, you know, and it's, it's funny because, you know, it's like saying we go with the 1972 rule book from the major league baseball association. We go, with, <laughs> we don't like pitch count. So we're going to, we're going to roll that back. Yeah. Um, or we go with just technical files, not flagrant one and flagrant two. And, yeah, yeah. Right. 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 So that was for you, David Allen. <laughs> so I think it's funny that not funny. I think it's interesting that that you have to know that going in because I've had friends who 
have gone to churches and they say like, wow, that, that was a really conservative church. And, you know, we'll talk about it. I might pull up their website and like, well, yeah, see, they say they adhere to the 2000 Baptist faith and message, which says, you know, this is the biblical role of manhood and the biblical role of, you know, females and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so much of that faith and message stuff came out of those, you know, that mid nineties existential crisis of, of gender norms and <laughs> how the Bible plays into uh, the understanding of, of a changing American culture. Uh, and, and it's, it, I think it's the same thing that, that, that taps into, you know, the, the MAGA movement, you know, 20 years, 20 years later, you know, we're, we're still having those conversations and, you know, my friends in New York say, well, you know, how can you people think like that? And then my friends here say, well, how can you Yankees think like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just two different, two really different worldviews based on, you know, different associations. Um, but, it, but it's so interesting to me because we get so into our insider baseball language in our denominations, even in the Protestant world, that we don't even really have a recognition of how things are different in other denominations. So I was having a conversation in the carpool line waiting to pick up our kid that is an Episcopal school. And it was about something in the Episcopal church, namely confirmation and that practice. And the person was like, yeah, but I don't know how you become a member of an Episcopal church or, you know, different things. And I was like, really? You don't? And thinking about, you know, growing up, that was the same thing for me. Like we didn't learn the way other churches did things because that would open our minds to the way other churches did things, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so much of that, like the Baptist faith and message stuff, is driven from a hierarchical, typically male point of view, you know, and saying, like, this is what the biblical model of maleness looks like from, you know, uh, this group of old white males who identify as, you know, cisgender, heterosexual, blah, 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 blah. Or go go away once a year and have a conference to decide on these things, right? That's very much like the councils. Yeah. <laughs> where yeah, things but it, were decided. Right. And we talk about how decentralized the Baptist world and Baptist church is, but at the same time, if you don't align to this and this and this, then you're not a proper Southern Baptist, which is what us cooperative Baptists were fighting against. And we're trying to say, no, no, that's not the way to be Baptist historically. So we're going to break away and do our own thing. And now we're fighting with the same damn thing because we have a LGBTQ hiring policy that has caused so much, you know, hurt and strife and chaos in the past 15 years, um, you know, just at our central office. But then again, the, you know, our CBF leadership always kind of has this complete, you know, hands off approach to everything. So when we say, Hey, we need some words or some action on this, it, it almost comes across as, these milk toast platitudes because they don't want to seem like they're stepping into that Southern Baptist kind of prescriptive yeah, approach. Where resu- yeah. Where resolutions are made. Right. And that's, yeah. and a lot of people have critiques about this again, going back to our Methodist brethren and sister who are in the middle of this right now, just awaiting a decision to know if you are now, if you are still considered a rostered Methodist minister, if you are openly LGBTQIA, yeah, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. I know little one's getting fussy and needs to probably have her 30-minute her meal session here every 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> but And we need to talk about parenting and, uh, and pastoring on, on an upcoming show. But, um, you know, I've been having regular coffee with, with a local imam here from the mosque, from a mosque in town. And one of the things we've talked about between, because he's so fascinated that I'm a Baptist, you know, white male Baptist guy, and, and he's 
a black, uh, you know, Muslim who's come out of the nation of Islam and, and, you know, charted a, a separate path. But and grew up Baptist. Grew, grew, well, even, oh, fundamentalist, we'll say. So. Well, black Baptist. Right, right, right. And um, we, we just have these great conversations and, and we're not afraid to poke holes at each other's belief systems, you know? So he's like, how can you believe that, you know, God would do this? And I'm like, well, how can you believe that, you know, this happened in a cave and, you know, not, I'm not saying that disparagingly, you know, just really. No, I mean, there's a a mutual respect though. in in the way that you've relayed the conversations to me that you can offer these legitimate questions without being labeled offensive or discriminatory. And and that's what he said. And as we've, we've developed trust with, with one another, you know, the last time we met, he said, you know, I really value, you know, these conversations we have because, uh, you know, I, it's rare that, you know, we, we get to talk to people from a Baptist perspective who are willing to be offended and then say things that might be taken as offensive, but in a way that, you know, it, it isn't, is inside of a, a trusting relationship. So all and that it's to say, curious. It's yeah, curious. Right. Right. And I'm like, Nation of Islam, really? Like, you know, how, how do you reconcile that? And, you know, we, those types of questions that you, you just don't get to ask on, on Reddit, you know? So all that to say, I think so much of this current situation, whether it's United Methodist or the Southern Baptist or even here in C- CBF world or in your UCC world where you're seeing membership roles tank, you know, it's, to me, it's fascinating that we're, still not at the point where we can say, hey, we have mutual trust and, and re- relationship and responsibility to each other. So we're going to ask t- difficult questions and we're going to have this interfaith or this interdenominational or this, um, you know, within our own ranks, we're going to have these conversations in a way that, uh, you know, we all agree is, is coming from a place of love and, and care and concern for the ultimate goal of whatever we're trying to do. Um, not, not, not to say that I don't want to come across this as, you know, an, an incel from 4chan who says, well, are you being so sensitive? Stop being sensitive, you know, whatever. I, I acknowledge my privilege, but at the same time, I think we, we have to have these tough conversations. And that's what the imam said to me is that so much of interfaith dialogue doesn't go anywhere beyond surface level because people are so afraid to push a little and, and say what they really think or ask what they really want to know. And in some ways, that's good, but in other ways, you have to use cultural context and cultural clues to be able to find those openings and, and explore those in a, in a mutually respectful and privileged, acknowledging way. Yeah, but I think you also have to just have a calm presence. Like, you're not trying to convert him. He's not trying to convert you. And once you take that out of the equation, then you can actually be curious about the person who's sitting across the table from you. You can, you know, and it's... It, uh, for me, I think it's it's also me acknowledging to him, hey, look, I know I'm a white guy from rural South Carolina. Right. We've done a lot of terrible things, you know, to African Americans and Africans and Black people in, in South Carolina. Um, you know, and his, you know, a lot of what he brings to it is, is this idea that there's, you know, this, this cultural sort of psychological burden on both of our sides. Yeah. You know, and and acknowledging that, and then you know. Beyond the you know white person black person dynamic, there's also you know us Christians and those Muslims you know figuring out okay well we've got a thousand years of you know pretty uh, pretty fifteen hundred years of pretty interesting dynamics you know and for the most part it's been very adversarial so 
what does this look like now? Like, how do we have conversation in a way that acknowledges that past and, and celebrates it in some way, but also, you know, puts a light on it, but then also says, what do we do now? And, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's been a healthy thing for me as I, as I think about what the UMC is going through with the LGBTQ question, as I think about, you know, what, what the Southern Baptists are going through. Um, I don't know. I think more people need to get out there and, and talk to people who aren't like them in a way that is not just, you know, put out a table and say, you know, um, you know, say something to offend me or whatever, you know, but, but, you know, really go out there and, and have these conversations and not, not be afraid to uh, get out from your, your little group of like-minded people that the internet makes so incredibly easy to, to just surround yourself with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to unfollow that person because they made a tweet about this thing that I think differently about. It's like, come on, get over yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good word, you know, to be there and to to be willing to to open yourself to the opportunities and invitations that present themselves. I mean, don't don't seek out the abusers or the crazies as you, you know what was the crazy crazy makers? Crazy makers. Yeah, yeah, that's the term. You listen to uh, the latest Minister in the Mystic, and you'll you'll find out about that. <laughs> well, thank you. I know this has been difficult with the uh, with the little one, but I've enjoyed our conversation. I always enjoy our conversations, no matter where they take place. Where can people go to find out more about Reverend Mariana? <laughs> well, I just realized on LinkedIn I was still the pastor of my past church, and on one place on my website, and so I think now everything's updated. It's only taken me. Two months. That's pretty good. Uh, so you can go to Mariana.net, find out more about who I am, and that has the link to everything else. Yeah, awesome. And uh, and you're, again, now a UCC pastor. You come out of Southern Baptist Life and through CBF and now into the UCC, which is yep. pretty exciting. Uh, we need to talk about that too, like your, your thoughts on that, because the UCC is a completely different organization than say the well, CBF. I was going to, I was going to talk about that. Um, when we have time, because I just actually Baptist news global just interviewed me about that switch and about, um, the number of women who are actually making a switch to a different denomination from the Baptist world. So yeah, was, that would be was, an interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. That and the, the movement of, uh, talented young, young female pastors who can't find positions in churches because of the interim church or interim pastor program we have in Baptist life, taking up all the the holes that would have been filled by you know, young, talented preachers in the past or pastors in the past. And so they're having to jump two, three, four states over and uh, to, to see the, the loss we've had over the last five years of, of really talented you know, female Baptist ministers has, has been um, frustrating to say the least. But yeah, we'll oh, talk and about I'll, that. And I'll say LGBTQ as well. Yeah, totally, totally. Right, because it's like, well, we've we've got three affirming churches in the state, so uh, try to try to get on with one of those. And it's like, why? Well, how are you going to do that? Yeah, that's a good conversation. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, bye, little one. I'll see you when I get home. <laughs> Love you. Love you too.